it felt like that from our perspective. Maybe it's like, you know, when's this going to get down? I don't know, but uh, hopefully not. But uh, we're surprised that we're, we're rolling over into the final chapter and excited to uh, finish this out strong. We've got a few more weeks. We've got a standalone communion service, um, a, a fifth Sabbath service in there. I got that right for the first time. And uh, so we're looking forward to really wrapping up this series as we move through the month of July and, uh, and then kicking off a, a new teaching series as we move through the remainder of, of the summer and the fall months. And so more to come on that. But James chapter number five, last week, uh, Andy preached in regards to uh, this, this final section of chapter four, uh, admonishing uh, his audience, his, his Christian church that he's writing to, to not presume on tomorrow, right? He, he challenged them to be mindful of the brevity of life, uh, that it's, it's but a mist and a vapor. I hope you were challenged as well as encouraged through that, uh, through that message. But at the end, there should have been a response, and that response should have been one of, of humility. As we continue to work through James, as we finish out chapter 4, we should have been drawn to a response of humility. This humility should draw us to a state of reliance upon God, submission to His sovereign plan in our, our lives, understanding that, guess what, I, I really don't uh, have control of these reins of my life. God is sovereign at all times, over all things and all peoples, Amen. right? And uh, we can resume on tomorrow, but what we can do is we can take the opportunities that we have day in and out. And live them for His glory. And seek to shine bright. And draw others to Himself. So verse number 13 in chapter number 4 was a call to come now, you who say. In chapter 5, verse number 1, we have the same imperative that James lays out. He says, Come now. There's a, a transition in, in topic here between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we are to come now and consider a topic. The title of this evening's message is going to reveal, reveal that topic. It's a prophetic warning for the wealthy and rich. A prophetic warning for the wealthy and rich. The big idea of our text is going to be this. Those that place their hope and worldly riches will find they do not satisfy. As such, the Christian should not desire wealth, but if the Lord allows, it should be used for His glory. Okay, and regardless of the balance that you have in your bank account this evening, regardless of your investments in your 401k and all your material wealth, whether you would consider yourself rich, poor, or somewhere in between there, I believe that God has a word for us to consider in our life. Because this evening, although James is going to be addressing the wealthy, the rich, the wicked outside of the church in this prophetic warning, there certainly are going to be many elements of application for us as believers to consider and for us to think about how we are relating to wealth, how we are relating to money and material possessions this side of 
eternity. So would you join me in prayer this evening as we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. Father, we thank you once again that you've given us this incredible privilege to come and gather as the church, your bride. Jesus, thank you for calling us out. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for overcoming. Thank you for giving us the ability to be right with your Father through your sacrifice, the shedding of your blood, the giving of your life. Father God, thank you for your generosity towards us in giving us your own son. Thank you for modeling this spirit of of giving, this spirit of meeting others' needs. Father, thank you for Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. I pray this evening that we as a church, that we would not be known as a wicked, selfish, rich, and a wealthy individual. Father, in here in America, we have so much available to us. We have been blessed beyond measure to not have to worry or in many times not have to think about where our next meal will come from. We know that that's not because we are in America, but because we have a good, good Father who knows of our needs, desires to meet them. I pray this evening that we would consider what it means to be generous. We would consider what it means to relate rightly to material wealth in the context of Scripture, in the context of the body of Christ, in the context of this world that we live in, that we would hold all that we have with an open hand and we would be willing to give, we would be willing to engage we would be willing to use the resources that you have entrusted into our care to meet the needs of others. So Father, this evening as we consider the profile, if you will, of a wicked, rich, worldly-minded individual, I pray that it would not be said of us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move Pray that the Holy Spirit would change us to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Man, we're going to look at this evening five aspects of this warning that James has for the rich and wealthy of his day. So the first aspects of this warning is this. James warns the rich of an imminent and certain judgment. Look at me in verse number one of chapter number five. James calls them in and says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James does not hold back any punches here. He does not sugarcoat any of the words. He gives clear warning to those worldly-minded, rich and wealthy individuals 
that there is a sure and certain and imminent judgment that is coming upon them. They should be mindful of this warning. So once again, James circles back to this topic of the rich. We've seen this throughout the book of James in a number of occasions. If you remember a few chapters back, if we walk down the street and we see somebody in need and and we say, hey, go be warm and, and filled and we have the ability to meet that need and we don't, how can we say that we have faith, that we are a believer, that we are walking as Christ would have, we can't. And so James circles back once again to this topic of the rich. And instead of giving admonition to believers and Christians, he is calling out the worldly ruling class of his day. These would be those that would own land. These would be the ones that would be, uh, again, wealthy in status, have status in, in their society and in their culture. So here we are in this first verse, a warning to the rich that there is a judgment coming upon them. Why? Because instead of placing their faith and hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ, they have placed their hope and faith in themselves, in their material possessions, in this reality that they do not lack in this world. Therefore, they are secure in what they can provide for themselves. They have not grown into this reality or understanding that there is something beyond this world. There is a judgment coming that someday we will all, created in His image, we will all stand before God and give account for what we have trusted in this side of eternity. So again, James uses this imperative, come now. I want to start by just calling out that there is some Controversy in chapter number five in regards to the audience. I've stated here that I'm going to come to this passage with the understanding that James is addressing those outside of the church that would be worldly and wealthy. We'll continue to build that case as we work through it. But others believe, based off of the same imperative from chapter four and chapter five, that, hey, this is the same audience. He's just moving on to a new topic, um, addressing the same group of people. But one thing that we do see Change and shift from chapter 4 to chapter 5 is the structure of how James has addressed his readers in chapter 4. If you remember, we use that term diatribe, right? He's structured his, his sections in a very similar format where he's calling his audience out on a potential sin or inappropriate behavior. He's giving them teaching on it, and then he's what? He's called them to repentance. To come before the Lord and to, to change that behavior, to confess that before the Lord and, and to walk in faith. But here in chapter number five, he certainly uses the same imperative, but we see a, a shift in how James is structuring his admonition. There's no call to repentance. James understands his call out to the worldly and to the rich here to be a sense of final judgment. They have made the choice to place their faith in themselves and what they can provide for themselves. They have not understood themselves as in need of saving. Therefore, the rich that are described here, I would argue and contend that James is hitting a strategic pause in the middle of his letter to the church and he's calling those out in a prophetic 
sense of saying that the wicked have a judgment coming upon them. Think about this dispersion. Think about the trials. Think about the persecution that the church would have likely been experienced that would have caused them to disperse. Those trials and tribulations and persecution likely could have come from these same rich people that James is calling out here. The church, many of them working class, would have been working in the fields owned by these rich people. The trials that were talked about in chapter 1 could have been the very trials that would have come under the oppression of these rich people that again are being addressed right here in chapter number 5. So almost in an Old Testament prophetic type of fashion, James is calling out the wicked, worldly, and wealthy people of his day. Come now, you rich. The landowners, those with status, wealth, they would have workers, employees, that would have been reliant upon them for a living wage. Food, shelter, sustenance, wages, they all would have likely been provided by these wealthy landowners that James is addressing right here in chapter 5. So James again warns them of this imminent, certain judgment. We see these prophetic admonitions and warnings Denunciations given to the worldly of the day. We see this in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Amos. We see it in other passages in the Old Testament, but James again models this type of structure and he calls them to a certain response. What is the response that he is calling these rich to experience? Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Weep and howl. How? Why? For the miseries that are coming upon you. The rich, wealthy, the landowners that are going to be described in really a, a bad light that are creating egregious wrongs against humanity throughout this passage that we're going to work through if they only knew what this final judgment would look like. They would have already been weeping and howling and lamenting, confessing and repenting, but they have not. Why? Because they are self-sufficient. They're self-sufficient. They have no need of a God. They have no need of anyone or anything else. Why? Because they are the God of their own Life. Why? Because they've been successful. Why? Because they've accumulated stuff. Why? Because they have authority and status over others of their day. So James, in this Old Testament prophetic fashion, is calling them to a state of weeping and howling or the miseries that are coming upon you. There is a day of reckoning that will come for those who do not place their trust in Jesus Christ. And this is what James is attempting to call out here in this first verse. So why would, why would James take the time in this letter to 
address those outside the church, the wicked, the oppressive, the wealthy class of his day. Why would James do this? I'll give you a couple reasons. One, this apparently was a common enough practice that the church, those inside the church, would have likely been already actively experiencing this type of oppression in their lives and their families. Right? So the ruling class of the day, and we're going to get into what this oppression is going to look like, but this was a common enough theme in their day that James is taking the opportunity in his letter, his communication to the church, to call out this egregious and unjust circumstance and situation that is happening in their society. If they had been taken advantage of, in, if they had not, excuse me, been taken advantage of in this fashion that will be described, they likely would. So how should this believer respond to this type of oppressive, rich, and wealthy, wicked individual of their day? I referenced James chapter number one. Do you remember? Verse number two, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect and may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is using this opportunity to shine some light on this unjust circumstance of their day to do what? To encourage his readers. He's calling out that, I see it. We know it's there. And guess what? God sees it and knows of this wrong as well. Encouraging the readers that the Lord has not forsaken them. Let me ask you this. Have you ever looked around at the wealthy ruling class of our day? As many times the psalmist did, why do the wicked seem to prosper? Have you ever had that thought in your own mind? Why, why, God, do we, do you, excuse me, allow the wicked to prosper? This is a common question, generation after generation, that comes up. James is addressing it. The Lord sees this wrong occurring in their society. He knows it. And it is going to be made right at that day of judgment. There's a sure and certain judgment coming. So there'll be some encouragement to remain steadfast as chapter number one encouraged us to do. The second reason I think James would take time to address this particular situation is that he would likely have leveraged this opportunity to recalibrate the minds of his readers. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes when we see the wicked prosper in our society, what do we, in the back of our mind, maybe in the, the, the smallest corners of our heart, what do, we, what do we begin to desire? What do we present, uh, begin to have a little twinkle in our eye about? Is it not worldly possession sometimes? Can't they lure us and entice us and draw us away? We see, hey, the wicked has this. They're prospering. I want that as well. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things of this world grasp the hold of our heart and our mind and grab our attention. 
That's why scripture tells us to lay aside every weight and a sin that clings so closely. It's like the tentacles of sin, the things of this world, worldly pleasures, riches, material wealth. These things are all of the world and are passing away. First John tells us, but he that does the will of God abides forever. There's an eternal mindset that James is using this opportunity, he's calling out in this prophetic fashion to these worldly and wicked, wealthy folks of his day. He's reminding his internal readers, don't desire what they have. Don't pursue and seek out what they have already attained. Why? Because it is temporal, fleeting pleasures. It is passing away. Pursue the Lord. Remember Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, did he not express this same mindset? Matthew, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where Moth and rust destroy where thieves breaking and still, but lay up for yourselves treasures where in heaven, being an above-minded Christian, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and still, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is there not? a moment of application for the believer in the midst of this condemnation of those outside to consider where is our treasure? Have we allowed the things of the world to draw us astray? Does the American dream, has it become our object and our goal as we're living and growing families, living life in this day? We're consumed with the next thing, the stuff, accumulations. Have we been caught up in this consumeristic society that we live in? Do not desire what the world has. There's a better way. Because Jesus is better. Christ is enough. The inheritance that we have waiting for us in glory that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, oh, how great it is. And everything that this world could offer pales in comparison to the treasure that we have in Christ. He is worth pursuit. He is worth the denial of ourselves, the taking of our cross and following him. James warns the rich of an imminent and certain judgment. Second, James warns the rich against hoarding excess wealth. James warns the rich against hoarding excess wealth. Look at me, verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. There it is. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James now begins to build the case against the wicked and wealthy ruling class of his day by offering some context now. 
He jumped in verse 1 and said, Come now, you rich. Weep how there's misery coming. There's a judgment and it's imminent. It's coming for you. But now we understand why. We get, we get the additional context of understanding why this judgment on the wicked and rich that are outside the church, why it's coming. There it is. It gets specific. That's why, as to why they are worthy of this condemnation, there's evidence. And the evidence to present is a stockpile of wealth that has been accumulated solely for the purpose of pleasing themselves. What is this evidence that stands against them? As verse number two describes, it is this stockpile of wealth and accumulations that they have gathered and achieved on the backs of others solely for the purpose of serving their own pleasures and desires. So here, James will deploy again some prophetic imagery as we have the backdrop of this coming judgment that was laid in verse number one, their riches have rotted. Their garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver are corroded. They have hoarded wealth and accumulated great material possessions at the expense of others. So what have they gained? What is the fruit of their labors? What have they achieved? What is their reward? It is rotting, corroded, temporal, fleeting piles of wood, hay, and stubble. This is the evidence that stands against the rich as they place their confidence and their faith in themselves. This is the evidence that stands against them of why they are worthy of this extreme condemnation, these miseries that are coming upon them, this pile of stuff going to be consumed has no eternal value it's what they gained what they achieved what they experienced was in that moment they've lived for that moment and as such this pile at the day of judgment will be consumed I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3 you remember in verses 10 through 13 According to the grace of God, Paul says, given to me like a skilled master building, excuse me, a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. This day of judgment will disclose it or reveal it because it will be revealed by, get this, fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I think of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, I alluded to them Earlier, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
Its source is rooted in the world. It goes on, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So these rich, wealthy, ruling landowners of their day, their worldly accumulations have left no question in regards to their culpability in receiving this condemnation, this eternal condemnation that is coming. So thirdly, James warns at first that judgment is coming. He warns against the hoarding of excess wealth. And third, James warns the rich against unethical business practices. We see this in verse number four. Look with me there. Verse number four, James is warning the rich against unethical business practices. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Let's read that one more time. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is warning here the rich against unethical business practices. So James has given the context of why the worldly and rich ruling class of his day are worthy of this condemnation, but now he gets even a bit more specific with that context. He gives us a particular instance of this egregious act that is being deployed against the workers in his day. This evidence that stands against them, specifically applied, looks like this. There seems to have been this, uh, this practice where rich landowners were deploying these unethical business practices. The wages... What was due to these workers, these harvesters, for mowing the field? Um, now, I know this mowing the field isn't, you know, taking a mower and mowing. They're, they're harvesting crops, right? This would have been grain, wheat that would have been harvested in the field. So they're not coming down there with the Toro Time Master and, and mowing a field, right? They're, they're, they're harvesting wheat. They would be working hard in the field. They were laborers for a particular purpose, this landowner would have hired them. They would have had an agreement upon the wages for the work that they were to uh, be responsible for. And here we have James noting that the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. These rich landowners, they've accumulated additional wealth, excess wealth, by doing what? Holding back wages of the laborers that they had agreed to pay for a specific job. Unethical, cheating, stealing, it's wrong. James knows of it. He knows the weight and the burden 
The impact, severe impact that this would have made on the working class of his day. And he's holding back no words once again. Which you held back by fraud. There's no question about the heart in this. It's wicked. It's wrong. There was ill intent. This was not a miscommunication about the agreement. There was intentionally taking advantage of another individual. James will have none of it. He calls it what it is. It's wrong. It's fraud. The work was completed. The order offered only a portion or none at all of what was agreed upon. The owner had power, authority, status. What is this peasant worker going to do about it, right? In our day, it would have said so soon. <laughs> no skin off my back. I don't care. Not my problem. Move on. This was the attitude. This was the disposition. This was the demeanor of the wicked, wealthy, and rich described here in James chapter 5. Well, guess what? For the wicked and wealthy business owner, the Lord sees. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I love this. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Pause. Time out. Friends, when you have been taken advantage of, when unjust practices have been deployed at your expense, when a wrong has been done to you, the Lord hears, the Lord knows, the Lord sees, the Lord cares, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall to various kinds of trials. Count it all joy, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see how James is circling back these things. Whether your business agreement goes through like it should or not, whether you're taking advantage of or a wrong is done to you, take heart. Know that the cries that you proclaim up to the Lord are heard. Serve a good, good Father. You must ever doubt that this evening. The Lord of hosts has heard the cries of the harvester. This is extremely good news. For the worker and very bad news for the unethical business owner. Why? Well, this is only bad news for the landowner if this Lord of hosts has any real authority. So James selects this title for the Lord for a very specific reason, to encourage his readers that if they are experiencing this or if they experience this type of unjust act in the days ahead, take heart that the Lord of hosts has heard your cries. Title in the Greek, Kyrios Sabaoth, 
the Lord of hosts. It's referring to the God that is the powerful commander of the heavenly armies. The Lord of hosts. The God that is powerful, that is the commander of the heavenly armies. It is that God that hears the cries of the harvesters that have been taken advantage of, that have been trampled upon, that others have been enriched upon their labors and their backs. They have gone without, but the Lord of hosts hears their cries. James's readers here in this text and even us today, can we not take heart knowing that God sees and knows our unjust state? The Lord on that day of judgment will right every wrong. Friends, take heart. And in the meantime, count it all joy when we meet these trials. So quickly, James warns that judgment is coming. He warns against hoarding excess wealth, unethical business practices. And number four, James warns the rich against living a lavish lifestyle. Look at me, verse number five, it says this, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, uh, excuse me, that's chapter four. Chapter five, verse number five. Let's try that one. It says this, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So here James begins to demonstrate the heart, the mindset behind the rich and the wealthy that have been overcome with this worldly stewardship of material possessions. There's a process that we see unfold here of a hardening of one's heart to the reality of the circumstances that they are living in. It's at their actions that are taking advantage of other people, that are literally taking bread out of the mouths of those that desperately need it. And we see a hardening of one's heart as they begin to, over now a pattern of life, begin to live a lavish and luxurious lifestyle because of the wealth that has been accumulated over the time. Placing one's hope in Material and worldly possessions over time will look like this. A heart becomes harder to the people that we take advantage of. There's no remorse around engaging with others in business in an unethical way. Why? Because as long as I can get more, more luxury that I can live. You see it here in verse number five, or let's do it again, apologies, verse number five. You have lived, have lived. This is, this is a pattern. Have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The rich have lived carefree. No worries. They have much. They have excess. They're presuming upon it. No regard for anyone but themselves. Their hope for the future is in themselves. Paul, in his 
first letter to Timothy reminds the wealthy Christian. This is going to stand in stark contrast to what we see here in James number five. The wicked, worldly-minded, wealthy individual versus the Christian who has been blessed with excess and resources and wealth. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this is what it should look like for the rich inside the church to steward those resources for the glory of God. Chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. See the contrast. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous. And get this ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for their future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, it's not wrong to have wealth. How we steward that wealth and how that wealth is deployed and who it is to serve, whether it's myself or the Word of God, makes all the difference in how we relate to material possessions and wealth. Let us not fatten our hearts for our own pleasure and gain, but rather let us be rich in good works, as Paul admonished, generous and, and ready to share. That's radical generosity right there. What the Lord, everything we have in our life, our bank account, our home, our vehicles, everything that we have is a gift from the Lord. We've earned none of it. But for the grace of God, we have what we have. And so therefore, we don't grasp a hold of our possessions as our own, but rather as we understand this stewardship mindset, we loosen our grip. And we understand, God, whatever you give me, whether it's much or little, God, let it be for your glory. Let me use it to bring others to Jesus Christ. Let the gospel be furthered as a result of how I steward the resources that you have given me. This is a challenge in front of us. This brings us to our final warning. James warns the rich against the danger of seared conscience. James warns the rich against the danger of a seared conscience. We talked about a pattern. The slippery slope, if you will, of, of riches, if not placed at the foot of the cross, if not having a steward mind, stewardship mindset, if not being generous with our wealth, if not being rich in good works, we can fall prey to this same mindset. So James is calling out the worldly, the wealthy, the rich of his day, this ruling class, the landowners, he says in verse number six to finish, you have condemned. You have Murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, there is some controversy here of whether this 
could be taken literally or whether it is figuratively described in regards to uh, the, the rich and the wealthy, whether they literally have murdered or whether these acts have just been so egregious over time that their heart displays the heart of a murder. They have a desire to take advantage of somebody's life, even to the point of taking their life. Regardless of whether we land on that, the livelihood of the working class is purposely being taken away. Bread intentionally taken from their mouths. The meager wages are purposely held back from these families for selfish gain. When we think about the downstream impact of this, it undoubtedly would have resulted in some horrible working conditions that day. Potentially, it could have even culminated to some folks starving to death. Others, as you look at some of the history and dynamics of this particular time period, others indicate that there potentially could have been false accusations of, of stealing that could have come from these landowners as a method to avoid paying them the wages that we, they were rightfully due. The work is done, the harvest is complete, and then it comes time uh, to, to pay them, and there'd be an accusation of, hey, you have held back some of the harvest, or you stolen, or there could be some other accusation of inappropriate behavior that would have been uh, an out for this landowner to hold back additional wages and to pad their own pockets. These charges potentially could have resulted in some type of capital punishment being handed down. Lives potentially were literally taken by these ungodly, rich, and wicked ruling class so James wants to be very clear, and he should be understood rightly, as his description states that this is murder. Whether it's in the heart or literally acted out upon, there is murder at the hands of these rich individuals. Blood potentially was literally on their Hands. And so, friends, there is this evening a star warning to the rich, a prophetic warning. There's an imminent judgment coming. Why? Because they were hoarding excess wealth. They had a seared conscience. They were living a lavish lifestyle. They deployed unethical business practices. Friends, I hope as we consider and look at the fruit of our own life and how we as believers relate to money, wealth, material possessions, I pray that none of these could be said of us. But rather, I pray that 1 Timothy chapter number 6, as was read and described, that we are standing ready to share what we have been given, that we are generous, that we are rich in good works, and that we can display the heart of God of giving what we have to meet the needs of others. To bow your heads. Join me in prayer as we close our service this evening. We're going to have some time of application here in a few moments. But I wonder if the Lord convicted your heart. Are you um, displaying the behavior of the wicked and ungodly here in James chapter number 5? I pray that it would not be said of us. But friends,
as we come to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that if we do need to confess or repent in any way big or small of a way that we have not related to money and material possessions in a way that completely glorify you for placing our trust in stuff and bank accounts and retirement accounts. I pray that we would shift that trust away from those things and we would place it 100% completely on you. Father, you have called us to be planful. You've called us to be good stewards of the resources you have given us, but you have always challenged us Keep our faith in you and you alone and nothing else. Father, I pray that maybe there's somebody even here this evening that has been taken advantage of in their career, in a job, in a workplace, by a family member. They haven't been paid back. They have, have been at loss because of somebody else's choices. I pray that we would be mindful that you, Father, have heard our cries. That you, the Lord of hosts, carry us Sabbath, God of angel armies, commander, the Lord of hosts, hears our cry. And we can remember, and we can be encouraged this evening that at the day of judgment, you will right every wrong. Until then, Father, let us take heart, encourage us, strengthen us. Let us count it all joy, Father, when we meet these trials of various kinds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.